0: We have big news to report to begin this week in the CLE this Monday morning. It's another update in the House Bill 6 scandal. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. Chris Wernowski is taking a well-deserved break. Happy Monday, Laura and Jane.
2: Happy Monday. Happy
1: Monday.
0: Let's get to it. What is the big development this Monday morning out of the HB6 bribery scandal that took out former House Speaker Larry Householder and has embroiled First Energy in major stockholder controversy? Jane Cahoon, what is it?
1: Well, FBI agents are at the home of PUCO Chairman Sam Randazzo this morning. The Cincinnati Inquirer reports that agents were going in and out of a, of a house he owns. Uh, We don't know much more than that, but we're working on the story.
0: Although we have wondered for months how he has avoided the glare of the spotlight as the head of the PUCO. He's the one that has been providing First Energy with its sweetheart rate deals forever. You have to think if there's scandal involving First Energy, the nuclear bailout, it's got to dip into the PUCO. Although it also, I guess it could be about the windmill farm, right? We've had major controversy about that. Jane, why don't you bring people up to date on where that stands?
1: Well, that was, you know, Randazzo is regarded as really an opponent of wind energy and uh, and other forms of alternative energy. And uh, a lot of different groups had been seeking to, you know, get him off the PUCO because, um, and he's also got some ties to to first energy and so forth now that I'm trying to remember exactly the well, details he, where the, also, the poison pill thing go ahead but
0: he's he's the chairman of the siting board so oh the when, power
1: siting board right, right that, they, approved power- that and put a poison pill into it that everybody thought is basically going to kill the project and then when some light was shed on it they came back and um you know went ahead and and took that out but now I'm I got to check back and see wh- where that thing stands. now. Well, but
0: now. let's also talk about the timing. So they put the poison pill in that effectively kills it. The raid comes on Larry householder's house. The <laughs> scandal comes of $60 million in bribery money from first energy. And then all of a sudden Randazzo and the Citing board, after having a memo to say they're going to keep the poison pill, all of a sudden dropped it after the scandal began The suspicion was they didn't like the glare of that spotlight of corruption coming their way. Now the FBI is raiding his house. So it could be about the sighting board. could be about other matters involving First Energy. We'll have to see what happens to Mr. Randazzo. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the significance of the heads of Northeast Ohio's major hospitals signing a letter to the community published as a full-page ad in Sunday's Plain Dealer. Laura Johnston, The hospitals are the choke points of the coronavirus crisis. These are all competing systems, but they came together to sign this letter. What did the letter say?
2: Yeah, they came and basically said that you need to not give in to COVID fit, fatigue. We know that you're tired, but you cannot let your guard down and get together with people. They're asking people that to combat these climbing numbers, to wear a mask, stay distance, wash our hands, and not gather. It's the same message they've been preaching since the spring, really, but the numbers have gotten so dire that I think people are really just pleading for us to follow the rules. Uh, You remember last Monday, I'll the heads of the hospitals from the different regions in Ohio came and spoke on a special two p.m. Monday news conference basically saying we're okay right now as far as capacity, but our healthcare workers are getting sick. They're getting sick with COVID from the community spread and they can't care for for the people in the hospital and in the ICU if they're at home recuperating. So they came together from Metro Health, the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, the VA, SUMA and St. Vincent all saying, Follow the rules and, and, you know, limit your indoor gatherings.
0: So these systems all compete with each other. They don't usually come together in a public way on pretty much anything. But but by doing so, is, is this a sign that they're worried about their capacity, that that if they get filled and everybody keeps saying there's not a capacity problem, but the numbers are out of control. Eventually, math says they'll have a capacity problem that they're worried they'll have to turn people away and then death rates will go up.
2: Well, yeah, I think so. And remember, Cleveland Clinic already postponed um, non-essential surgeries that require overnight stays, and other hospital systems have put in other safeguards in place. They're limiting visitors and stuff like that just because they, they want to make sure that they have enough room. Remember, the clinic had created an extra hospital at the beginning of this. That's what they used for the debate, for the presidential debate in September. I don't know if these hospitals have built out more capacity since then because- at some point, we thought things were getting better.
0: Well, it was a striking act. It's it's a pretty dramatic moment when they do that. And it's a sign, I think, that they're afraid of what the outcomes will be if people don't get it together. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How does Cuyahoga County's Health Director, Terry Allen, want people to celebrate Thanksgiving this year? Laura Johnston, we started asking this question three weeks ago. Why aren't public officials imploring people to not have big Thanksgiving gatherings. And we even asked Mike White about it at at one point, and he didn't say anything emphatic. All of a sudden, there's an emphatic message coming out, and Terry Allen was one of the ones that was making it.
2: Yeah, he wants you to stay home, eat your turkey with your immediate family, and that means the people who live in your house. Rather than these big traditional Thanksgiving get-togethers, Allen recommended alternative ways to celebrate. He wants us to... You know, FaceTime each other to connect, wait for another time to celebrate, drop off food uh, on people's front doors of your neighbors and friends, but not to gather inside. Or you can, you know, take a suggestion from cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer and play a whole tournament of board games (laughs) over the long weekend.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we did. We got some good reaction to that. People appreciated all of our thoughts. We'll have more things like that, card games this week and some other things after that. The idea is you're in a bubble. That 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 you live with people. Those are the people you're exposed to. And the minute you go outside your bubble, there's a risk involved. And, and the more people that you get in touch with and get in contact with, the more danger there is. And of course, at Thanksgiving, you have to take your mask off because you're going to eat dinner. And that's when we know things get really dicey, right?
2: Yeah, you cannot eat with a mask, can't drink with a mask. And think about a, a big Thanksgiving table where, you know, you have all of these aunts and uncles and cousins and, and people squashed together because you never have enough table space, right? And you're passing uh, the food back and forth. So you're all touching the same dish and you're touching the same utensil. And it, it gets warm in there from the turkey cooking. And people are spending all day watching football. I mean, it's just – it's a recipe <laughs> – for a really bad pun. Well, I don't know
0: about <laughs> your the- families, but when my family gets together for a dinner like a Thanksgiving dinner, they get kind of loud. And yes. as we know, when you're talking loudly, you're spewing germs in a much much more dramatic way. That's why choirs and things have been curved because of the the singing spells it out. So pretty much everything about a Thanksgiving dinner. Is is COVID heaven, right? I
2: mean, yeah. I mean, I can't believe you don't think that my family has a really loud table at Thanksgiving <laughs> or any time we're together. But yes, loud talking, not a good thing.
0: Well, it took him a while to do it, but he finally did say it. And uh, that's. I hope people heed that advice. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why has Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost filed another lawsuit to stop the collection of fees in January? Under the very corrupt nuclear plant bailout known as House Bill 6. Jane Cahoon, I I appreciate Dave Yost's zeal in trying to protect us from this corrupt fee, but he already filed one suit. Why did he file another?
1: Yes, this is the second suit. He filed this one because he wants a judge to issue an injunction to stop both the collection and the payment of the bailout money to the Davis-Bessie and Perry nuclear plants. That his first lawsuit sought to only stop the distribution of the money to Energy Harbor, the former First Energy subsidiary that owns the plant. So, th- this one actually attempts to stop the money from being collected from ratepayers, and that those are um, new monthly surcharges that, as you said, are supposed to start in January, rage, ranging from eighty-five cents for residential customers to as much as twenty-four hundred dollars for large industrial plants. You know, Yost says that the people of Ohio are about to be shaken down for money they should not pay and they'll never be able to, to get it back. The suit notes that the Ohio law doesn't allow refunds for utility fees, even illegal ones, uh, unless there's some sort of refund mechanism set up as part of the fee. And Hospital 6 doesn't have that. So,
0: uh, so let's talk about that for a minute. because. Yeah. I I had forgotten about the legislature passing that law some years ago, not that far back, but a few years back. And I wonder now about First Energy's money being involved in persuading them to do that because it made no sense at the time. There was a fee that First Energy had collected illegally, and there was a lot of noise being made to get it paid back. And the legislature came to First Energy's rescue by passing this ridiculous law that says, unless Or was it a Supreme Court decision? It might have been both. Right. I'm not remembering.
1: Or maybe it was the P.U.C.O. I don't know.
0: (laughs) No, I think. No, I think they passed a law that said that you cannot collect the fee unless the law that set up the fee. Basically says it must be paid back in in some sort of refund. Why would the legislature do that? Why would you have anything on the Ohio books that says if a utility collects money from you illegally, they don't have to give it back? This
1: <laughs> well, that's which, a we need, very good question, Chris. A very good to, question.
0: Yeah, we need to go back and and we, we need to have our, ask our reporters to go back and look at how that one came to be. Because if HB six was forged in the crucible of corruption. Was how that came to be similar. I just can't remember if it was a law, if it was a Supreme Court ruling. I just remember being astounded that utilities would be allowed to keep money that they got from you illegally. What other walk of life does that happen in? It's just <laughs> ridiculous. Anyway, good for Dave Yost. I hope he, I hope the courts move on this. We're running out of time. We have six weeks left in the year, and six weeks that fee starts to get collected. And he used very, very strong language to try and move it along. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's it going to take for Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson to start closing down businesses to slow the spread of COVID-19 in the city? Laura Johnston, Mike DeWine is very slowly reopening the possibility that he might close some things down. But he long ago said this is a local uh, job, that the local authorities are the ones that are supposed to be paying attention. And Frank Jackson sounds like he's moving in that direction.
2: Yeah. And remember that Jackson put on a mask order way before DeWine did back on July 3rd um, in the advance of uh, Independence Day celebrations. So he has been at the forefront of this. He had a news conference on Friday. He warned of possible business shutdowns if the city continues to experience these record numbers of new coronavirus cases and if people are failing to follow the safety guidelines. He's already stepping up enforcement of the rules requiring face masks and social distancing in public places. He's delaying the reopening of city buildings. And so far in the city and its partners have distributed more than 72,000 masks in Cleveland. Now, you know that police have been enforcing this in Cleveland since July, since his um order. But he says the point is to give out the masks and tell them of the rule, not to just like write up places and close down businesses. But um, Jackson, like the governor, is saying a lot of the problems is these informal gatherings or parties uh, like weddings, uh, receptions and funeral wakes. He spoke very uh, seriously about this. He said if there has to be a shutdown, then the devastation of that shutdown will be worse and go deeper than the first in terms of loss of businesses, closings of businesses and loss of employment.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to parrot the restaurant owners here and say, if Jackson believes that it's family gatherings that are spreading this, why would you shut down businesses?
2: I mean, that's a really good question. And it's something that the restaurants are asking. And also gyms are are asking. I saw a petition that people are signing online for that. And I think it's because they can't go knock on every person's door or check their backyard and make sure people aren't hanging out and watching a football game. Like, and we've talked about this before. When you're eating and drinking, uh, that is when you can't wear your mask. And that is the serious problem for spreading the coronavirus. And you look at a place like a restaurant and it's it's obvious that people are not wearing their masks. But um, I, th- I think it's just an enforcement. They can't go into people's houses and tell them to knock it off.
0: You've got to separate the 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 restaurant owner's resistance. Mark Bona, reporter Mark Bona did a wonderful story about Brendan Ring, the owner of Nighttown, deciding to shut down his restaurant because he just doesn't want to be to be the guy responsible for the spread of the virus. He knows how devastating the virus can be, even if it doesn't kill you, and he doesn't want to have his restaurant spread it. When you go into a restaurant, you're in an indoor place, you take your mask off, the virus can easily spread. The restaurant owners are saying we want data. We want data justifiably. There should be data. It's inexcusable that health departments, the county health departments, the state health department have no data. But but it's also a good bet that when you get people in enclosed spaces with no masks, it's spreading. The restaurant owner's do have an argument that if they're going to be on the front line of this, that if they're the ones that lose their livelihoods because of the fight against the coronavirus, the government should help them. That's not really the debate that's taking place right now, though. It's more we want data or you shouldn't shut us down. And do we believe that this will move into if we shut them down, the government has a responsibility to help them out?
2: It might. Nobody's really talking about that yet. And it's not like the government said, if we have to shut you down, here's what we're going to do for you. So it might be something that's going to have to be pushed. Um, Maybe there's some legislator that will bring that up, but it's not really part of the discussion right now.
0: Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Which major Ohio bank is failing in its promise to lend more money to black people and in black neighborhoods? Jane Cahoon, this is interesting. There were three banks that had agreed to step up the lending they do to help people who don't normally get the opportunity from home ownership get it. One of the banks isn't really doing it,
1: right? That would be Fifth Third Bank, uh, which is based in Cincinnati. It was one of these three Ohio-based banks that that said they would do more to encourage more home ownership in many areas, including distressed majority black parts of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County. So they entered into these so-called uh, community benefit agreements to issue more mortgages to low and moderate income prospective home buyers and to people of color. The The other two banks were Cleveland-based Key Bank and Huntington Bank of Columbus. Uh, the The data shows that, that Fifth Third Bank made little progress on Cleveland's east side or the inner ring suburbs between 2016 and 2019, whereas Key Bank and Huntington issued more loans to people in those categories in the county. But the data also shows that the east side and the inner ring eastern suburbs remain underserved overall by lenders. And in addition, top lenders still reject black applicants for mortgage and home repair loans. In the in the area at higher rates than, than white people, even when accounting for income. This data was compiled by Frank Ford, who's a senior policy advisor for the Western Reserve Land Conservancy.
0: I, you know, I'm a little bit surprised that this doesn't result in lawsuits, because the study makes clear that when you take away all the other factors and everything's equal, black people get rejected more than white people, which is the definition of discrimination. And I would think that if you could show that and you've been denied a mortgage, you, you'd have a case to make that I'm being denied because I'm black. And I, did, it, 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 I didn't see much response in the story from the banks. I'm sure that they don't want to talk a lot about this, uh, But but it would seem like there needs to be some accounting, right?
1: Yeah. The Fifth Third issued a statement which really didn't say much. It said they're committed to regularly examining data to ensure that Credit decisions are being made based on credit characteristics as specified in its underwriting criteria. Anyway, <laughs> I won't even go on. But uh, so that's what what they yeah. said. You know, Ford acknowledged that he he couldn't make a definitive determination of whether race is a is a factor, but he said, "I do think that one has to consider that it still may be a likely factor when high income black borrowers are denied not only more than high income whites, but they're also denied." more than middle-income and moderate-income whites. So uh, anyway, I don't know about lawsuits or anything else yeah. resulting from this, but the data is very interesting.
0: It'd be interesting to see if a law firm tries to launch some sort of class-action suit. It seems like they have grounds. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. More than a week after Joe Biden became president-elect, is it looking any more likely that some Ohioans will be in his cabinet? And how would Congresswoman Marsha Fudge who represents a very urban area, be a solid choice to head up the agriculture department. Jane Coon, let's let's take them in turn. Is is Ohio going to have anybody in in Biden's cabinet? We talked about it last week, but we were premature.
1: Well I, I think Marsha Fudge is the most likely one, but Seth Richardson looked at a number of possibilities. You want to hear them before I explain about um yes. Fudge's qualifications for this? Yes. So we have people like Sherrod Brown, who who you would consider he'd be like a natural fit for labor or treasury secretary. on the banking committee, you know. He's big with labor issues, uh, dignity of work, et, et cetera. But that seems like a non-starter because we know how valuable that Senate seat is to the Democrats and what's at stake now for control of the Senate. So. They they would not want to take him out of that job, and the same might be true for somebody like Tim Ryan, who who might be a good choice for Labor Secretary too. But his district has been getting a little more Republican these days, so you never know what could happen, like in a in a special election for that. And we've talked about other people like former Governor John Kasich, who you know he just might be a little too conservative for Biden's or, cabinet, or, and, or annoying, <laughs> or, or annoying, or I I frankly, think his ego is too big for it. And he doesn't seem overly interested. And who knows, you know, he could be gearing up for a 2024 run for president. And so that might not <laughs> be a good place for him to be. And then we have um, Rich Cordray, who's, you know, a really, really smart guy, former Ohio Attorney General, who headed the C- Consumer Financial Production Bureau. He he could probably be a good Treasury Secretary. But, um you know the obstacle with him could be that uh we we all know what Republicans in Congress think about him they they tried to abolish his agency and get rid of him on on a number of occasions, so that might be too high of a hill to climb to get him confirmed. I don't know, but uh you know he's regarded as somebody who you know who could be in the mix. but I've knocked them all down basically um except for marsha fudge so you you asked about her you know you might think um what you know why would an urban black Congresswoman be, be a good fit for this. But, you know, actually she, her qualifications fit this job well. And she's, she's made a compelling argument for this. She's openly, uh, uh, you know, campaigning for the job. She, first she sits on the U S agriculture committee, U S house agriculture committee, and she chairs a subcommittee on nutrition oversight and department operations She's well-versed in the SNAP program, the, the food stamp program, and she's a fierce defender of it. And um, she said, you know, people don't realize that 80% of the agriculture budget is food and nutrition programs. She said, I've worked on enough farm bills to, to put my experience against almost anybody's. Um, she she formerly headed the um, Congressional Black Caucus, too, and, and she makes an argument that African-American are women helped... Biden win the White House and and picking her for the job would would help Biden make good on a promise to to name a cabinet that represents the, the country as well as his um, supporters. So, you know, if she got the job. She would be the first black woman to serve in, in that position. So and also the department oversees the nation's historically black colleges and universities. So so that would Fit in the, well. the
0: the key there is the food stamp program. She has been an advocate for that. There've been a lot of attempts over the years to cut that, to have a fierce protector of that to help solve the hunger problem in America. She'd be she'd be great at it. What happens if she gets it? How do how would Ohio fill her seat?
1: I think they would have a special election if this happened soon and her district as we know all the congressional districts in Ohio are heavily gerrymandered and her districts heavily swings toward uh, Democrats. So if there was a special election, chances are, you know, a Democrat would probably be a shoe in for that.
0: Although we are expecting those districts to get changed before the next election. Well,
1: right, yeah, right. That but goes. that's not until, yeah, 2022 election.
0: Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE How many coronavirus cases have we had in Ohio since our last podcast episode Friday morning? Laura Johnston, these numbers just keep making you drop your jaw.
2: They are incredible. Um, We broke another record Friday with 8,071 cases. Saturday, there were 7,715 new cases. And Sunday, weirdly, was higher than Saturday, which almost never happens. 7,853 that's a total of 23,639 cases added over three days. Now we are at, we are 298,096. So we are going to surpass the 300,000 mark today. Uh, we've had more than 22,000 hospitalizations since March, 5,700 deaths. And the sheer volume of this is just astounding when you start to think about it. I edited Cameron Fields' timeline of the coronavirus, which ran over the weekend on Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And in the summer, when we were breaking case records and people were worried, it was like 1,500 cases. And and that seemed astounding. That's when we put the mask order in place. And now you look at this and we're, we're seven times that.
0: Well, I was worried when we were talking about bringing our newsroom together to cover election night. Weeks out, I was worried if we got to 3,000, I would call it off. And about a week before, we hit 2,800, and now we're at 8,000. I mean, it, the, the chances at the rate of increase, the chances are we're going to cross 10,000 this week, which, again, nobody would have suspected was was even a remote possibility a month ago. The timeline puts it into perspective very clearly, the the just rapid march that we're seeing of the, uh, the numbers, which is going to start to... to Cripple the hospital capacity eventually.
2: And Terry Allen, the health commissioner, said on Friday of uh, Cuyahoga County, said that we could be having tw- two thousand cases in Cuyahoga County alone, like in a day, which just is incredible. That's yeah. mind-boggling.
0: Yeah, it really is. So this week in the CLE, what do gym owners have to say about the possibility that Ohio Governor Mike DeWine might shut them down again? Jane Cahoon, we've we've talked a good bit about restaurant owners and how upset they are. The gym owners are making just as vociferous an argument, especially the ones that have put a lot of effort into safety. They're they're furious that there's no data available to them to show that they're in trouble. Right,
1: right. That that's one argument that they make, and the other argument is that they shouldn't be lumped in with the eating and drinking establishments because unlike the restaurants and bars, you know, where you have to take off your mask to eat and drink, you, you can wear a mask while you exercise in, in a gym. And so they are saying that, you know, we're, we've invested all this um, money in safety measures and, and we don't think we should be lumped in with them. I mean, they acknowledge, you know, we saw that study in, in, the scientific journal Nature that says restaurants, bars, and gyms are spreading it. But as you said, they, they're saying there's no Ohio data showing this. And so uh, so they're upset. They've seen other gyms that have been forced to close permanently, and they say they're already operating with fewer clients than they've had before. So they think this could be a death knell for them.
0: We received an email over a weekend, um, the very lengthy email, with a lot of studies in it by a gym owner saying, look, the, the proof is we're not the problem. Look at all of the data that we have to say we're not a problem, which is surprising. You haven't seen anything like that from from restaurant owners. Uh, it, it is odd that they're a target with with no data to, to show that it's a problem other than that cell phone study, which is big data, but it's not conclusive. And you would think that maybe the health departments would talk to people who have coronavirus and ask, have you been in a gym lately? But
2: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't go there. <laughs> Can I add something in? This is Laura Johnson. Um So also the other argument is that this is going to be a long, cold, hard winter and people want the gym as their like, sanity space, right? That they want to be able to work out to be healthy and to burn off stress. And I realize you can run outside and there's a lot of exercises you can do outside. And some people have Peloton bikes and and you can work out at home. But I think that that's another another push that they're saying is like, look, let us be safe. You don't have to go to a gym if you don't want to, but if we feel like we can do it safely, this is our stress relief and we really need it this winter.
0: Right. And we, we announced this weekend that we're going to be doing a pretty significant mental health project involving COVID and how the stress of this, all the various stresses of this are, are harming people. And you're right. Anything that helps people vent that stress makes a big difference. So again, it, it, it'll, if they go that route, no, there'll be lawsuits immediately and <laughs> Mike Dewine will be in court.
2: I will but, be way crabbier. <laughs> but,
0: but you do wonder if they're going to put any proof behind the decisions if they make the decisions. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, that does it for a Monday episode. I don't think Chris is back mm-hmm. tomorrow. See back Wednesday. We'll have to see Thursday. All right. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who's listening to this week in the CLE.